the gay rights movement wants you to think that sexuality is the most inherent, important, central reality of personhood that exists. One of the things Ken Smith did for me was he made me think about one key question, Rosaria, is being a lesbian who you are or is it how you are? That is an important question and it's an important question for Christians to think about. See, if you actually think that gay and lesbian is who your neighbors are, then I can really see why it would be very difficult for you to share the gospel. But if you actually look at this biblically, homosexuality is never who someone is. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria is an author, a speaker, a pastor's wife, and a former professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She's the author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and The Gospel Comes with a House Key with Crossway. In our special extended conversation today, Rosaria and I discuss how God used the simple, everyday hospitality of one pastor and his wife to introduce her to his word and ultimately the gospel. She also shares her thoughts on what it might look like for Christians to lovingly engage their LGBTQ neighbors and friends in a way that is both winsome and faithful to scripture. Let's get started. Rosaria, thank you for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, Matt, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. So many of our listeners are probably at least somewhat familiar with your own story, your own personal journey to faith in Christ. But for those who aren't, could you just briefly share a little bit about how God drew you to himself? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I, I suppose most of your listeners would be interested in just, I mean, you know, the story starts long ago and far away, right? But, but um, uh, you know, 20, 20 years, 20 plus years ago, I was living as a lesbian in New York, where I was a newly tenured professor of English and women's studies and cultural studies at Syracuse University. And my, um, my partner and I, um, we felt like we just lived a very normal, boring life. We ran a rescue for golden retrievers and she was also a professor and we um, worked very hard to be good citizens and good caregivers and um, in the process of just my professional life some of the some big questions would of course present themselves and my my um, my feminist and Marxist worldview weren't always capacious enough to deal with those questions and so hmm. um, um, after my tenure book was written, I decided to really uh, get into the, the meat of the things I was concerned about. And so I was starting to write a book on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. And in the process, I, I needed to read the Bible to do that. I'm an English professor by training, so I don't get to just go and interview people. And um, in the process of doing that, I met a neighbor who was a friend who was a pastor, and um, Ken Smith is his name, and he and his wife, Floyd, became my very good friends. And um, in the process of our developing friendship and also the kind of hospitality that they extended to me, um, it's a long story, which is why I wrote a book about it, but um, the word of God got to be bigger inside me than I, and Jesus became 
real to me, whether it fit with my politics or not. And mm. so when I came to Jesus, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian, but I did realize that whether it was comfortable for me to think about this or not, original sin um, marks us in ways that sometimes mean that our unchosen sin knows our name before we even take our first breath. And so, so these were some of the deep issues that my conversion forced me to think about. Uh, you know, people would ask, well, what kind of hospitality did these people, you know, do? What, what, what was it like, you know? Because really the LGBTQ community is highly given to hospitality. So it, it, it's not, um, you know, what was it like? What was it like in Ken and Floyd Smith's home? And I tried to explain, well, they had me over, you know, weekly, sometimes nightly, and their home was open to people like me, um, not just people from the LGBTQ community, but people from, from you know, from really every walk of life, it seemed all the time. Their home was a, was a way station for Christian conversation. And they weren't, they weren't horrified when you asked bold questions. They didn't, they didn't feel like their Bible was going to disintegrate when mm. you leaned hard and heavy on it. And, and often people will look at me kind of con in a bit of a confused way and walk away somewhat rich, young, ruler style saying, well, wow, they must be super Christians, you know, good for them. I could have never done that. Yeah. And in hearing you talk right now, and, and even in certainly in reading through the book, it is amazing how on the one hand, radical, the, the hospitality that they showed you in opening up their home on a regular basis to you and to others, how that, that's extreme in one hand, uh, compared to what we're often used to. But at the same time, it's also so ordinary. They weren't right. They weren't doing something sophisticated. They weren't didn't nope. have some master program or plan. They were just saying, "Hey, come to my house and have a meal with me," and and yet God used that in a powerful way. Right, right. And I would say too that it wasn't it wasn't gospel by osmosis. I mean, I knew what I was in for at Ken and Floyd Smith's house, and and hopefully, you know, all of my neighbors know what they're in for at my house. You know, there will be a meal. And people will absolutely linger long over the table. But at a certain point, the dishes will get, you know, the kids will take the dishes to the sink and the Bibles will get distributed. And then we will open those Bibles, all of us, my unsaved neighbors and me, me 20 some years ago as an unsaved uh, gay rights activist and the Smiths. We, we all will do that and we all will invite Jesus into this conversation we're having, not to end it, but to deepen it. Hmm. And, and while that might sound to our listeners as something that's very uncomfortable, like a lot of things that might seem uncomfortable at first, it, it's not uncomfortable after you do it the first hundred times. Hmm. Yeah, elaborate on what you said there a minute ago. You said that the, the goal of the conversations was not to end them. Right. but to deepen them. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, I think sometimes people will use their Christian faith somewhat prophylactically, you know, like this. Well, I just want my neighbors to know where I stand on things. Almost as though your Christian faith is meant to filter out the riffraff. I don't mm. think that's the point at all. I think the point is, is to realize that, um, well, God's elect people are everywhere. So he's not going to get the address wrong, right? God doesn't get the address wrong. He's sending people to you for a reason. 
but but also, what is our responsibility to the unconverted elect? Are we supposed to filter them out? Not at all. Not 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 at all. We are supposed to lay bare in a very transparent way how faith helps us interpret the facts of our life, not because the one erases the other, but because faith indeed um, deepens, fortifies, sanctifies, delivers, redeems, shines light upon, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And since God has put eternity in the hearts of all image bearers, and since we want our neighbors to know what it means to reflect God's image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, something you can only do in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're willing to have long conversations with people. I mean, I don't mean conversations that don't end at a certain time, you know, when you've got to go to bed, but I mean <laughs> conversations that will go on over the course of our, you know, our, our tenure there in this neighborhood. I mean, how mm. many hundreds of conversations did Ken and Floyd Smith have with me? Um, and how many millions of people have been converted through this forthright, transparent, and consistent hospitality ministry? I think it's just countless. But, but I think when you're too programmatic, it gets messy. You know, I think sometimes Christians really think you're being, and you are being, I don't, I don't mean to suggest you're not being hospitable. You're absolutely being hospitable when you say to your neighbors, listen, we're having a dinner party you know, the, the fourth Tuesday of, you know, of, of next month, come 7 p.m. And, and that is hospital, but it really is. And I'm so glad you're doing it. But what I think we need to realize is that so many of our neighbors, so many of their lives are deeply affected by both abuse and also addiction. That for some people, quite frankly, they don't know if they're going to be sober or safe on the date that you've selected. And so therefore, having a more open-ended, regular hospitality time, at least for, for both for, for, for me and, and my husband, that's been very helpful in meeting people where they're at. One of the hang-ups that we often can feel as Christians on this front, it, it seems like we either can fall into one of two camps. On the one hand, we might be too fearful to actually speak the truth and speak the gospel at some point or even open our Bibles. The thought of, the thought of trying to do that with an, an unbelieving friend is, is scary to us. And so we, so we actually never talk about the gospel. Right. And on the other extreme, we maybe are too quick to rush to try to get them to make a decision, you know, and to get them to fall in one of two camps. Right. And we don't give them time to, to just learn and hear and talk and, and talk with us. Right. What do you think about, you think that's a, those are, that's a dynamic that you've, you've seen? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I would say that th there's, there's, um, there's some basic realities that I think need to lean in on both of those points. Um, you know, the, the first is that, and I like to think of Ephesians 429, making sure that your speech is filled with grace, um, uh, that is the, that is the kind of grace that the hearer can hear. So I think, you know, thinking through that, the first point is that you want to make sure that your words are not stronger than your relationship. So before you, you have a hard, you know, and a challenging conversation with someone, make sure your relationship is really strong enough to handle it. You know, are you good neighbors? Do you, do you look after one another's um, well-being 
in a genuine sense. So that's that's the first, you know, that's that first point. Um, and the second point, I think, is that we need to remember that conversion happens not just because of what you say, but because how the Holy Spirit will apply what you've said. So the ordinary means of grace through which people will come to faith is the proclamation of the gospel. That means that you must share the gospel and, and you must pray over that. You must pray before that, that praying that the Holy Spirit will indeed be opening the hearts of your neighbors to apply the, 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 the saving uh, faith that is necessary for the words that you speak to have any impact at all. So both of these things are true. And both of these things are going to happen in organic daily ways. So I think what's, what's, what's challenging is that we live in a very, we're very busy. Um, we think very highly of our busyness. And we don't get to control the Holy Spirit's schedule. And we don't get to control our neighbor's uh, challenges. And so I think for a lot of people, that can be hard. That, that messiness can be hard. But I think that's part of the gospel imperative. The world around you is in crisis. It really is. But you, Christian, need never be in crisis. I mean, that doesn't mean things aren't hard. But you don't have to be anxious about that. You don't have to be um, losing it. What it means to have Christ in you, what it means to have the liberty of Christ is that you can be calm in the storm. You can be a Psalm 1 uh, man or woman in a Psalm 46 world. God's equipped you for that. Yeah, kind of on that front, I think it's safe to say that there are few issues in our culture today that are more contentious or even politically charged than those related to sexuality. And it seems like sometimes it's easy for Christians to feel like we're on the defensive on this issue, feel like we're, we've been unalterably pegged as being on the wrong side of history, uh, which can make it hard to, to know how to reach out or to maybe even want to reach out to the LGBT folks around us. And I think you, you actually capture this well in your book where you summarize your own view of Christians before you became one. So I just want to read this quote. You write, Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. So I, I first want to ask you, do you think there's any truth in that perspective that you had on Christians back then? Well, I mean, there's certain, I mean that certainly is how I saw um, the person I am now today. Hmm. I, that, that absolutely. And I think part of, part of why is because when you are living in sin, you're deceived by sin in my case, you're tenured in sin. Um, you, you know, you really are are um, you're insulated in a pretty steep way from gospel truth. So I, I had to, you know, and, and what what really broke that down for me was not a debate. It wasn't an apologetics seminar. 
it wasn't, you know, somebody sharing something and me kind of slapping my forehead and saying, oh, I, you know, I wish I had a V8. Now, now I see clearly. I mean, it just, <laughs> it just wasn't any of that. It was, it was studying the Bible so that I could really unmask it and instead having it unmask me. And, it, you know, for me, coming to faith was not this, you know, head down, shameful, you know, I'm the most despicable sinner in the world experience, but just this amazing reality that Jesus died for the likes of me. And, um, and you know, the people in my life who were, who were close in and sharing the gospel with me and living the gospel with me, they weren't shocked I came to faith because they knew that God was so much bigger than my sin that the you know the ratio wasn't even even worthy of a, a you know of a conversation and so i i think what's what's important i mean I, you know this isn't an image maintenance issue but christians ought to be good neighbors to all of their neighbors the bible tells us that we are all, especially elders, but we are all called to have a good reputation, um, both within and without the church. So both, both you know, our family of God, but also our, our unsaved neighbors. We're to be the neighbors who are known to return lost dogs and pick up kids at bus stops and, um, and uh, you know, help older people get to the doctor. And were to be some earthly good to the people around us. And that's not the social gospel. That's just being a decent citizen. Um, we need to build in time to do that. And maybe, maybe we're so busy with church, we're so programmatic that we don't have time for our unsaved neighbors. That's a shame and that's, that's a sin. On that front, do you think, as you think about the churches that you are familiar with or churches you've been a part of, do you feel like the church, again, I'm asking you to generalize here mm-hmm. a little bit. Do you feel like the church pays enough attention to the ordinary hospitality that you're discussing right now? Or do we spend too much time on programs and events? Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely something that churches, each church needs to do its own heart check on. So, um, you know, if everything you do has a boundary around it that says church, how will you be doing life on life with your neighbors? So if your small group is only open to members of your church and, you know, and everything else in between, if, if those are the, the ordinary things you do on a daily basis, it's just, you know, the reality is there's just 24 hours in a day. So I, I wouldn't say that I think this is um, overwhelmingly, you know, the truth of all of the reformed and evangelical churches I know. I think it's true of some, and it's not true of others. So it's just a heart, it's a heart question. Um, because for most of your unsaved neighbors, for most of your post-Christian neighbors, telling them that Jesus has saved them from their sins and inviting them to church isn't the same thing as it might have been 30 years ago. Because your neighbors don't really think they need saving from their sin. They think they need saving from you and other wackos like you. <laughs> so, you know, be careful of, you know, really just where do you start with people? Um, and so starting with a meal 
starting with um, living your life transparently, which in our case includes saying, you know, and it's, it's very organic at this point. We say, we're so glad you came for dinner. Um, this is the time when we open our Bibles and we read a chapter and, and we, we share our hearts and we share the things we would like to pray about. Would you like to join us and do that? And you know what? Most of our neighbors say yes. I mean, we've had a few say, well, how long will it take? I need to be home for a Skype call in 45 minutes or something like that. But, you know, we haven't really had anybody run kicking and screaming, you know, out the door, including our neighbors who identify, um, you know, in the LGBTQ um, community. So I, I think it's just, you know, are you a good neighbor? Do you have the street cred to ask your neighbor, hey, can you hang with me on this? Are you willing to stand close enough to people to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the savior? Are you willing to lose a little skin in the game? I mean, these are all, these are just all heart questions. Um, but I don't think a program is going to touch the nerve that needs to be touched right now. Hmm. Yeah. When you think about the hesitations that Christians can often feel to, to do this, particularly with the LGBT community, do you think there's an element in which our perception of that community is so dominated by, you know, the news and the media and social media and the big kind of caustic debates that are maybe happening out there that might not actually be reflective of the attitude or the just the, the simple neighborly kindness of the person living next door? Yeah, I would say that's true. But I would say there's also some big reasons behind that. So it isn't a misperception. It's a reality. It's a perception. And this is where Christians can really play such a powerful and loving role in the lives of your neighbors. I mean, one of the things Ken Smith did for me was he made me think about one key question, Rosaria, is being a lesbian who you are or is it how you are? Is it who you are, you know, organically, um, we would say as a Christian ontologically, or is it how you are because of original sin? Is it the authentic you or is it Adam's thumbprint on you? Now, I'm not saying that that's the first question you're going to have with people, but you know that is an important question. And it's an important question for Christians to think about. See, if you actually think that gay and lesbian is who your neighbors are, then I can really see why it would be very difficult for you to share the gospel because you might not want for them to have a train wreck conversion like I did. You might not want their whole lives to fall apart. You might be worried about how much responsibility you have in that. <laughs> but if you actually look at this biblically, homosexuality is never who someone is. It may very well be how someone feels. And how someone feels in a very persistent and, and, um, and consistent way for a season of their life, maybe a very long season. But it is never the, the who, it's always the how. But, but part of the challenge that we have is the Obergefell decision in 2015 introduced some new language into this conversation that made it even harder for Christians to know how to talk to their neighbors. And I would say the biggest one is this um, dignitary harm clause. 
And basically what this did, it really beefed up this, um, it, 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 it added a lot of teeth to this, um, this Supreme Court decision um, in this particular way. Um, when I wrote, uh, co-wrote a policy for domestic partnership in my, at my university, I was looking exclusively as harm in a material way. In other words, I think of myself as a lesbian. I dress like a lesbian. I act like a lesbian. I go into your pizza shop. I want to buy a pizza. You don't sell me a pizza because you don't want to sell pizzas to lesbians. I don't have a pizza. I'm mad about that. I want a pizza. That's not the issue anymore. The issue now is if you have harmed my dignity, even if you have provided me with the goods and services I needed, then you are committing a crime against me. And that's where it gets really challenging for Christians. And not so long ago, a dear friend of mine, very dear friend of mine, um, she called me up and she said, Rosaria, I've, I've now come out as a lesbian and we, we cannot be friends anymore because you do not approve of me. Hmm. And, you know, again, this is funny language. And I'm old enough to remember when people never would, I mean, I, I don't know. I just said, to, I said, Ruth, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. I've never approved of you. <laughs> and you know what? You've never approved of me, but we've always loved each other. Mm. But we disagreed about really important things long before this one. B- very big issues. So why is this different? Why have the rules changed? And who's changed those rules? And so that was, you know, I think it's helpful to realize that you just can't give a good answer to a bad question. So sometimes you have to be willing with people not to agree to disagree, but to, to disagree, to disagree and, and share dinner together, to disagree and open the Bible together, uh, to disagree and be good neighbors together. So when it comes to uh, Christians, born-again Christians who uh, accept the Bible's teaching on sexuality and yet would still identify as perhaps gay Christian or, or something like that, What's your opinion on that language that we that Christians would choose to use to refer to themselves, and how might that be a benefit or a stumbling block for uh, an unbeliever? Yeah, no, I'm so glad. That's a really important question, and I would say I'm going to a- a- apply the meat and milk paradigm again. So I have a, a I have a wide range of friends, including friends who call themselves gay Christians, and some of those gay Christians would say that they're celibate gay Christians, and other of those gay Christians would say that they are actively pursuing or actively involved in gay relationships. And, um, and, and so, you know, it's a pretty big question right now. So what I would say and what I eventually say, um, and what people know me to say because of my own rejection of that, of that category, it might seem like it's just perfectly safe right now, but it's a very simple and very difficult reality. If you are going to fully repent of your sin, you have to hate it. And the big challenge for every Christian, but especially the Christian who struggles against same-sex attraction, is how to hate your sin without hating yourself. The category gay Christian will never get you there. It, It becomes the waiting room for future sin. You start to resent God. You don't understand why God won't take away these feelings. You start to blame God 
And if ultimately you believe that it is only safe to find yourself in a church of other people who call themselves gay Christians, then what's going to happen is ultimately you are not going to grow in Christ, but you are going to backslide. And I have seen it again and again and again. And an excellent book on this subject, nothing I've written, is by Christopher Yuan, his new book, um, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. And it takes up this question in a very, uh, in, a, in a most helpful way. Language is not a small thing, and especially language of personhood, because if you do not start with a biblical anthropology, you will not arrive at a biblical Christian ethic. And so it is not a small thing. So it is not, um, it is not conservative. I, I've often heard this, well, these people are conservative. I, well, you know, I don't know what conservative means in that way, but it's certainly not biblical. These are not, it is not biblical to claim as an identity anything that you will not have in the new Jerusalem. And therefore it is not similar to using a category simply to uh, explain a theological nuance. Um, but in general, I'm opposed to tribalism. I'm opposed to sectarianism. And this is a kind of, it's a kind of insider movement that will not arrive at true gospel grace. Hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that this issue of sexuality is so wrapped up now, as you say, in concepts of identity and mm -hmm. a, a personhood right. that it does, it, biblical sexuality is often viewed as inherently, uh, just by, by virtue of what it is, discriminatory and even dehumanizing right. in, in, towards other people. How would you suggest that Christians discuss those issues in a way that, as you say, sort of maybe redirects and, and uh, suggests that this, the question itself is wrong. Right, right. Well, the first is, is to not take your cue from the gay rights movement. The gay rights movement wants you to think that sexuality is the most inherent, important, central reality of personhood that exists. And so one of the things that you can do is get to know your neighbors who identify on the LGBTQ continuum in other ways. You know, get to know them as parents and as tennis players and as dog walkers and as gardeners. Um, find out how you can be earthly good to them in other ways. Find out what's really going on in their lives and share with them what's really going on in yours. Um, so, so that's the first one is to just de-emphasize this issue because not because it's not a gospel issue, it is a gospel issue, but because you're trying really hard to not accept the terms of the LGBTQ rights movement. Um, the other thing is to realize that, that actually the LGBTQ rights movement is, is trying desperately to award dignity to each and every person in that community. And that's something that as a Christian, you should be able to really appreciate because that is what the gospel does for all who embrace Jesus Christ. And that is what that is. The gospel is a, a, an award of dignity. The image bearing of, of, a, of a believer is an award of dignity. So we are, we should help our neighbors. We should get to know our neighbors 
in, um, in ways that do, in fact, respect and, and value them, not because of their sexuality um, and the way the LGBTQ rights movement would have you do it, but because of what God has already said, this is my image bearer. Um, this may be someone who does not know how to reflect my image and knowledge and righteousness and holiness, but all of the, all of the material is there. As you think back on your own story and your own experiences in those early days with Ken and Floyd, is there anything that we can learn from their example when it came to specifically approaching discussions about sin and about mm-hmm. uh, our rebellion against God uh, and and even hell? Like, how did they approach those issues with you? Right, right. That's such a good question. You know, the Bible makes a distinction between meat and milk. But often Christians don't. And I would say that for two years, Ken and Floyd gave me a lot of milk. Um, They really did. Um, And and when I would try to pigeonhole them in a question, they they uh, they would reframe it in a way that allowed me to handle the answer. So, um, so for example, they didn't really feel like they could answer directly a question, do you think homosexuality is a sin? There's an answer to that, and you can believe, you certainly know that Ken and Floyd Smith would know the answer to that question. But, but what their concern was that I didn't understand what sin was. I understood what sins were. In other words, I understood that Christians believed that there were certain moral failures that if you added them all together, equaled these things, this category called sins, plural. But what I didn't understand was that I was born with equipment that condemned me. What I didn't understand was that original sin condemned me, actual sin distracted me, and indwelling sin manipulated me. I had I, could, I was only looking at one aspect of that. And so rather than using me as exhibit A, Ken and Floyd opened the Bible so that we could talk about human nature. We could talk about, are human beings inherently good or are they not? And if they're not, what do you do with that? And so, mm. so they were masterful at remembering that they were talking to me. They weren't talking on a podcast to a bunch of other believers who wanted to sound theologically smart at dinner parties. They weren't talking, you know what I'm saying? They weren't weren't Mm. sitting down for a seminary exam. They were talking to me, a pretty lost soul. Um, and, And they also knew that sin is deceptive. And I think sometimes we forget about that. To be deceived means to be taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. That's pretty powerful. Satan would love for you to do nothing more than to continue to reject deceived people so that they just solidify their allegiance to Satan. But Ken and Floyd were not going to go there. They were very mature Christians. 
And because of that, they could handle someone like me. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like what you're saying. Tell me if this is right. Is in some ways, there's a loving way to share the gospel, and there can be unloving and insensitive ways to share the gospel. And we might be sharing the same true gospel, but how we do it matters uh, as much as that we do it. I would agree. And I would also say that we need to be conscious of the fact that our infatuation with social media has made it very difficult for us to understand the difference between a private conversation and a public conversation. Hmm. See, for the most part, while, while Ken and Floyd Smith's home was very, very busy and they would have a lot of people over, when it really came town, you know, when it really came to the, the heart-to-heart talks, they made private time for me. I mean, this busy pastor made private time for me. And I think that we don't value that. We think it's much more valuable to get on a stage and clip on an ear mic and talk to 5,000 people. We think that Hmm. that's a much better use of our time than just talking quietly and letting that conversation linger long into the evening with one neighbor. But, But I would say that just the opposite might be true because you know how to speak you can cue off of a one person speaking. You can tell if that person, one person, is ready for, for meat or milk. It's very hard to, to gauge 5,000. And I think it's left us in a place where we often say more than we ought to and less than we ought to all at the same time. So I would say unplug. Don't, don't think so highly of your your social media world. Value the people whose eyes you can look into for real. Hmm. Well, and that I think that takes us back even just to the context that you described about uh, Ken and Floyd's dinner table where you're sitting there, you're with them face to face. And one of the things you've mentioned a number of times now is just reading the Bible with them. And that's something that you you do now in your own gatherings. Right. What did it look like? What 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 was that actually like, practically speaking, when you would sit down and read the Bible together? And what advice would you give to other Christians who, who want to do that with their unsaved friends as well? Right, right, right. Well, the first is to spend more time reading your Bible than reading blog posts, you know, to really mm-hmm. make sure that you are steeped in the Word of God. And the second is to make sure that, that you already have a very um, kind of an in-place uh, rhythm of uh, whether you call it family, we call it family devotions, and we would just say family is a pretty wide open term. You know, if if you're part of our church and you're part part of the brotherhood and the sisterhood of Christ, you're in my family. The blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. I mean, we would just say that pretty pretty outright. But but what I'm saying is, you know, we have you know after dinner, it's just it's just the normal rhythm of life to open the Bibles to linger over a passage, to ask hard questions of it, to ask for prayer requests and to pray. And we don't take a litmus test before we do that. We don't ask, you know, we, we don't take your temperature. We just, this is what the, this is what we do. And we would mm-hmm. love for you to do this with us. And, um, right. and because it's such, it's such um, a consistent part of the rhythm of our day, nobody's surprised by it. 
But so the first thing that Christians need to do is make sure that something like that is part of the rhythm of your day. Um, that, that, you know, your day really does start steeped in the word and it really does end steeped in the word. And it's not, it, you know, this is not something that we do. This is not some kind of show for our unbelieving neighbors. This is for us. Mm, yeah. This is for us. I need this. I need the word of God. I need the Lord Jesus to, to, uh, you know, to open my eyes. I need the Holy Spirit to, to unscale my eyes. I, you know, I need this, um, and and so and we don't we don't pressure people into it, but we also don't we don't shoo them away. We're not embarrassed to say this is good for everybody. This won't hurt you. This will help you. Um, we're we're not we're not embarrassed to um, to live below our means um, and to have a door that's open even when the house is messy. Um, you know we're not em- embarrassed to let our neighbors help us with things Hmm. and and not just our Christian neighbors, but I mean, our neighbors, um, we're not embarrassed to ask for help when we need it. We, um, um, and, and therefore, and and we, you know, we're not embarrassed to say, we don't have the answers. Let's go to the Lord. So speak to pastors a little bit right now who might be listening to us when it comes to shepherding their congregations and helping them to be intentional about being good neighbors and being witnesses ultimately to their LGBT uh, friends and family and neighbors, what advice or or exhortation would you give to pastors along those lines? Right, right, right. The first is to make sure that people are steeped in the Word such that they are not going to be um, taken captive by every wind of doctrine. So that's, that's extremely important um, to make sure that you know the word of God deeply and that it really is enriching you, that you're not going to be overwhelmed by, by sad personal stories. I mean, you can be sad by sad personal stories, but that they wouldn't overturn the word of God because you understand that the sin of Adam is just that it goes just that deep. It goes so very deep that everyone is born that way in some way. Hmm. So to make sure that your, your people are, are deep in the word and understand the comprehensiveness of sin, original sin, actual sin, indwelling sin. And, and the other is to make sure that you are not so busy that you don't have time for your family and you don't have time there then for your neighbors. Um, that you're not so so stretched thin with um, maybe even church activities, that you can't be any earthly good and spiritual good to those people who are who are directly in your world. You know, and, and it starts it starts with your family. Don't neglect your family to have a hospitality ministry, but do enlist your family in doing that sort of thing. Um, the and then another would be to, to watch your social media behavior. Make sure that you are not behaving in a way that causes people to filter themselves out. What might that look like? Just elaborate on kind of how that might manifest itself. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I would say almost everything, I'm not on any social media. I don't have any, I don't have time for it. Um, And I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a futile discourse I think that the best that social media can do is expedite 
uh, times and things, you know, that you could put something out there to let people know what time the church service has been changed to or where the fellowship meal has been relocated to. But as soon as it becomes um, a debate, um, as soon as it becomes a debate, people are, outsiders are looking at that and they are self-selecting because of what you say. And there's no way to really develop um, any kind of compassion in terms of what you say. It's just a very flat statement. And you know, the Bible itself, while it has much in terms of um, propositional truth, is not only propositional truth. Um, where, you know, where would I, uh, back in the days that I identified as a lesbian, come to an understanding of Jesus the Comforter, of my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If all I've ever seen you do is is rally against people like me, hmm. you know, I, I would self-select. I, you know, I, I just would. And so just be mindful that you're not talking to one or two people on the internet. You're talking to everybody. Hmm. Uh, and don't use that as an excuse to never talk really genuinely individually to people. Hmm. Well, that's so true because social media is inherently, while we can talk to so many, it's also so easy, as you say, to self-select and, and limit ourselves, limit who we're seeing and kind of create these echo chambers. So then it just reinforces the idea that it's such a, generally speaking, a poor avenue for actually changing minds and having real discussions with oh, people who disagree. It's a terrible one. And, and what happens is you're never then in a place to be historically useful to people. And this is what I mean by that. Um, I was at a speaking event a while ago, and at the end of the speaking event, a person who was very, very visibly male, but dressed in female clothing, stood up and really tried to grandstand, you know, tried to just say, you know, why is it that people like you hate people like me? Why can't you see I'm happy this way? And it was at the end of a long event. And I just said, look, this is such, these are such great questions. How about if you and I go and sit down in the pastor's office and just talk privately about this. Hmm. And so as, and, and you know, obviously this is a person who is identifying as a transgendered woman. And as, um, as this person and I were walking together to the pastor's office, somebody else started rushing up to us. And it was a person that had known this, uh, the person who was identifying as a transgendered woman from years and years and years ago. And so a man, you know, rushed up to this person dressed as a woman and said, David, what happened to you, man? What's wrong? And now I didn't know that this person's name was originally David, and, and mm. which is not actually the name because I always change names when I tell stories. And, <laughs> and, this, and, da- and so David says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not David. I'm Jill. Um, and I'm happy this way. And the man who had, was able to hold this history said, I don't believe you at all because we committed our lives to Jesus together. We, and then he started to give the litany of things that they had shared together, family time, church time. And by the time this man stopped speaking, the, the person who was calling himself, herself, Jill, is now in complete tears. Mm. And we get to the pastor's office 
And again, Jill says, I think I'm happy. And the person who's confronting in a genuinely loving way and who has, who, and who has the authority to, because that person had been in their, in their lives together, said, I don't believe it. How could anybody who has a war inside themselves be happy? How could you be happy if you feel one way and present another? This is not happy. This is turmoil. And I believe that Jesus can walk you through this turmoil. And that was such a powerful thing because you know what? The person who was doing the gentle confrontation had a legitimacy that I didn't have. And the legitimacy came from living life together, not just having good ideas. And so I think the challenge for the Christian pastor, the challenge for the Christian neighbor, is how to steer clear from what is false about Christian kindness and what is true about Christian kindness. So what is true about Christian kindness is that it, it is often confrontational, but it's lovingly so, and, it, and, it, and it, it's supportively so. Um, it, it's, it's a kindness that says, let's go to Jesus together, knowing that neither one of us will come out the other end looking the same. Hmm. But it doesn't say God believes that you can flourish as someone who is deceived by personhood. If you believe that LGBTQ is personhood, who you are, and you believe that Jesus is just going to meet you right there and allow that to fester, then you don't understand what grace is. Grace doesn't allow you to fester in the sin of Adam. Grace delivers you to have liberty. Now that liberty is, is, is that sanctification is progressive. It doesn't happen all at once. And it comes with a big battle because we all know that conversion comes in exchange for the life you once loved, not in addition to it. But we're going to walk this together. Having history with people, and I, and I would say every human being does. Every person listening to this podcast was at some point in first grade with people who are now claiming to be transgendered mm. or somewhere in the queer continuum. That means that you potentially have a lot of lived experience that you could lean into, but not if your social media profile has already opted you out of that. And so be careful. What kind of role could Christians have in the public sphere? We've talked a lot about interpersonal, uh, relational dynamics with our neighbors and our friends and family, but what kind of role should Christians play when it comes to broader, you know, cultural conversations uh, and even legal types of matters where we are trying to maybe stand for something that we think is important when it comes to the laws of the land. What would you say to that? Right, right, right. Well, I, w I would say yes, 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 yes. We must. It might not be that we can do all at once. It really might not be. I mean, it might be that you are better suited right now to be living a quiet Christian life 
witnessing to your neighbors and and discipling your children. And that's that is wonderful. And it might be that you find yourself the mayor of a very progressive city who um, is being faced with soji laws and you know you need help. So I would say yes and yes and amen. Hmm. Um, I am grateful for ADF and ERLC. And these are, if you, you know, for your listeners, these are, if you yourself find yourself in public roles needing help, reach out to these places. They are equipped to help you um, do the work that you're called to do. But, um, but it's both. And it's not going to be top down. So it isn't just, you know, we don't want to get into that pharisaical mindset that says that, um, uh, you know, that, that um, the, the laws of the lands will necessarily determine the hearts of people. No, it's both. But yes, yes, absolutely. I agree entirely. We must take up public roles. And, but you want to do it in a way that does, command, does commend you as a Christian who's thoughtful. Hmm. So deal with your protesters well. You know, if you are a public Christian, and I would say everyone is a public Christian, that means that the world needs to watch you do three things. Number one, the world needs to watch you repent. Oh, public Christian, please repent publicly. The world also needs to watch you forgive. So Christian public intellectual, turn the other cheek. And the third thing that every Christian, public Christian must do is wash a lot of feet. So do it and make, and, and make sure that people see you do that. So those are, and yes, you're going to, you're going to take up a position on, on Soji laws and you're going to take a position on, on pro-life and you're going to do other things. But if you are also someone who is known to deal respectfully with your protesters, to repent publicly, to forgive um, capaciously, and to wash a lot of feet without complaining, let me tell you what, you will have a, a hearing in this world. So as you reflect on your own experiences talking with uh, both Christians and non-Christians and seeking to, to do life with them and to share the gospel with them and to love them, uh, what's encouraging to you right now? Do you, what, what just makes you feel so excited about the future and about seeing what God is doing in our moment today? What I am most excited about our first gospel contacts. I, I love those. I think those are phenomenal. And I am so excited about the way that, that the, the, um, uh, the basic systematic theology that comes in the Reformed tradition, uh, and I'm, I'm Presbyterian, so I'm thinking about the Westminster Confession of Faith. My Baptist brothers are thinking about another one. That's fine. I'm, I'm so thankful for the way that that this great cloud of witnesses that, that has come before me has already thought through so many of these hard and good questions. I believe that we are writing church history as we walk through this landscape of sexuality. I believe that you will never find, you will never arrive at a Christian ethics 
without starting with a biblical Christian sense of personhood. And I'm excited about the ways that um, God's elect people truly are everywhere. And Jesus is leading from the front of the line. These are not terrible days. These are the days that the Lord has made for us, uh, for us to be joyful and for us to be um, articulate, for us to be loving, for us to be repenting, for us to be living transparent Christian lives. I pray for revival. I want nothing less than that. So I would just encourage the listeners today to not lose heart, to not lose hope. You know, we're not called to be sentimental. We're called to be um, faithful. And I'm excited. It's a Thursday. I'm expecting on a Thursday, Kent and I expect anywhere between 20 and 30 neighbors coming to our home for dinner. And we will um, open the word and we will pray and we will eat and we will talk and we will disagree and we will agree and we will hug each other. And then we'll find out how to help each other. You know, who needs doctor's drives for next week? Who, whose kid needs to be picked up at the bus stop? We're going to do life together. And I'm going to trust that God's going to continue to build into the lives of my neighbors, the gospel grace that I pray for them. You know, for the listeners who are out there, your private time isn't just private. It's not just for you. You're bringing people to the throne of grace who can't bring themselves there. That's big. And, and if, you're, if you're frightened by the world that we're in now, you won't see that. You won't see the blessing. So be of good cheer. Rosaria, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast and for sharing a little bit of your own story and just uh, some wisdom and advice for Christians when it comes to demonstrating the hospitality that we're called to in Scripture towards those around us. Thank you so much, Matt. I always enjoy talking with you. That was Rosaria Butterfield reflecting on what it looks like to lovingly engage our LGBTQ neighbors and friends for Christ. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to The Crossway Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.